0: If you have your Bibles, open them up, turn them on to Luke chapter 15. The other day I walked into the house and it smelled of popcorn. You know, there's just nothing better than walking into the house and it's all full of the smell of popcorn. I started to pop some corn in order to just make this story more vivid, but then I was afraid I'd burn it because there's nothing worse than walking into the house And having it smelled like burned popcorn. That's like the worst smell on earth next to a skunk or something like that. But I go into the house, it smells like popcorn, and I start chasing the scent. And I find my son Bennett with this huge bowl of popcorn walking around the house. And so I start negotiating with him. I'm like, Bennett, can I have some popcorn? And he looks at me and smiles, and he goes, No. I'm like, Bennett let me have some popcorn. No. He's like running around the house making sure that I don't get popcorn. I'm like, why am I envious of a two-year-old? But at that point, I wanted what he had. I'm like, there's no reason for me to be envious. I mean, I have something that he doesn't. I have money. I can buy another bag of popcorn and make my own popcorn. But I wanted his popcorn. And so we had this, this power struggle because I wanted some popcorn. You know, Envy is one of those sins, one of those activities that we don't really think is all that bad. You know, we're envious of somebody else's life, envious of somebody else's home, whatever it might be, job, but we don't really think it's that big of a deal. Yet within the scriptures, envy is a root sin. In fact, envy's in the Ten Commandments where the Bible says, thou shalt not covet. The word covet and envy uh, have a lot of Uh, synonymous parallel. Uh, It's one of the Eden sins. If you think about Adam and Eve, why they ate of the fruit and rebelled against God, because the serpent told them, you can be like God. And so they were envious of God's role. And it was out of that envy, that desire to have more, to be more than what God had intended for them to have, That's what led them to rebel against God. Well, we're in this series where we've been looking at the parables of Jesus. In Luke chapter 15, we have what is probably the most famous parable of Jesus, the parable of the prodigal son. I understand now it's often called the parable of the lost son. And this parable is a story about forgiveness. It's a story about hope. It's a story about family and the relationships between family, a story of love, and it's a story that whenever you drill down into it, reveals to us the ugliness of envy. In verse 11, Jesus begins telling the story. He also said, a man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of the, of the estate I have coming to me. And so he distributed the assets to them. So we have a man. The wife is not mentioned within the story, but Jesus tells us that the man had two sons. So we can presume that somewhere there was a mother, and perhaps the mother had passed away, and this father was left to raise his two sons. Well, these two boys, no doubt, grew up together. They shared a bed. They fought over the Nintendo. They washed the chariot together on Saturday mornings, played fantasy football together, fished in the Jordan River. These two boys had grown up together. They knew each other well. They were brothers. They no doubt had the sibling rivalries that exist between an older brother and a younger brother. Well, the younger brother falls into three traps. The first trap that he falls into is entitlement. He begins thinking that what his father has belongs to him. And look at the audacity of the young man. Before his father had passed away, he goes into his father and he says to him, Give me my share of what I have coming. Give me what's mine. Now the father reacts with a gracious, calm spirit And he decides, okay, I'm going to grant the boy his request. And so he goes down to Charles Schwab, and he meets with his financial advisor, and he gets his affairs in order. And the Bible says that he distributed assets to them. Now, that's significant to the story because the father decides that he's going to give both boys their inheritance. Let's see what they do with it. Let's go ahead and give it to them early. And so he blesses them both in this way. Well, in verse 13, not many days later, the younger son gathered together all he had, and he traveled to a distant country where he squandered his estate in foolish living. The second trap that he fell into is the trap of envy. The younger son said to himself, You know what? I'm tired of living here in Little Murphy, Texas. I'm tired of going to Murphy Road. I'm tired of Wiley High School. I'm tired of my dad and all of his rules and all the different things he says that I can't do. And he started thinking, maybe there's a better world out there. Maybe I need to abandon the values of my childhood and I need to start chasing after what's available to me and I have this money that I've been given and so he rents a U-Haul and he decides he's going to pursue the good life, the high life, the wild life, life lived on his own terms. And so he travels. He travels to the bright lights of Rome and he gambles at Caesar's palace. He goes and he celebrates Mardi Gras and he collects a lot of beads and he stands in Times Square as the ball falls, and he enjoys life to its fullest. He thought he was so smart. As he began to work through his ideologies, he began to think that he was smart, and he would share on Facebook, and he would share on Twitter all of his different philosophies, and frequently he was arguing against the very values with which he was raised. And those people that loved him unconditionally... Those people that had taken care of him all of his life, those people that were his family, he pushed away and rejected those that truly loved him, and he embraced those who just wanted to use him. And what's sad is that he probably didn't even know. He thought that these people were his real friends. He thought that they loved him the way that his family loved him. He had now pushed away and abandoned his family, and he thought these people would be there for him through thick and thin, and he didn't even realize that they really just loved him for what he could do for them. Well, in verse 14, after he had spent everything, a severe famine struck the country, and he had nothing. Now, I think in his mind, he probably thought, okay, one of these days the money might run out, but after I've spent everything, I'm still able-bodied. I'll be able to take care of it myself. But what he didn't realize is that in his foolishness, he had not prepared for economic difficulties. And a severe famine hit the country, and he was left with Nothing. All those people that he thought were his friends, they were gone. He was all by himself now. He couldn't do. He didn't have money to spend and to throw out, throw around, and so people left him. So he does find work. He's able to find work with one of the citizens of the country. It appears that he was probably either in Italy or uh, Greece, and he's sent out into the fields to feed the pigs. And the Bible says in verse 16 that it got so bad that he longed to eat his field from the carob pods. The pigs were eating, but nobody would give him any. And so the third trap that he fell into was emptiness. He had an empty bank account. His cell phone was shut off. There was no food, nothing to eat. There were no friends left to spend time with. He was empty, all alone. Mike Rowe hosts a TV show called Dirty Jobs. I haven't really ever seen it. Has anybody seen it before? But I I read an article where he was asked to identify, okay, what were the absolute worst jobs that you come across uh, in this television show? And so he identified a few. He said that a sewer inspector in San Francisco is a job you do not want to have. He said it's awful in the sewers of San Francisco. He identified a snake wrangler. A snake wrangler who who has to check the health of water snakes is a very bad job to have. He said a chicken sexer who determines when the chicks are very young if they are boys or girls. And because we're primarily city folk here, I won't get into the details as to how you determine whether or not the chicken is a boy or a girl. But he said that's a job that you do not want to have. He said probably the worst one was a shark suit tester. Now think about that for a second. Think about career day when you come in as the shark suit tester. But apparently there was an episode where he put on these shark suits and he goes underwater and he's like, here little fella, and he let him bite him in order to test the strength of the shark suit. Well, I talk about that because to Jesus' audience, nothing was more repulsive than a job feeding pigs. When Jesus says in the story, the young man got a job feeding the pigs, there was probably a groan that went through the audience. And then Jesus just takes it over the top. Not only did this young Hebrew boy get a job Feeding the pigs, he wanted to eat the pig slop. To Jesus' audience, that's as bad as it could get. Well, in verse 17, the Bible says, When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have more than enough food? And here I am dying of hunger. I'll get up, go to my father, and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired hands. And so he got up and went to his father. Now notice three things. First of all, he came to his senses. Envy makes you do some really dumb things. And this young man had become envious. He had become envious of a life that he had not been given. He had become envious of the world. And so he was chasing after it. And he had done some very, very foolish things. The older preachers have a saying. They say that sin will always take you farther than you wanted to go, keep you longer than you wanted to stay, and cost you more than you intended to pay. And this young man had found all this to be true. He had gone further than he wanted to go. He had been there longer than he wanted to stay, and it had cost him more than he intended to pay. And so eventually, he comes to his senses. The dark clouds roll away, and he has this moment of enlightenment. Secondly, I want you to notice that he no longer felt entitled. Earlier in the story, he was brazen. Dad, give me what I have coming to me. Give me what's mine. Now, his, his, his arrogance had been replaced by humility. He understood that his blessings were unearned, and he was willing to be a hired hand. Thirdly, he had a spiritual awakening. He said, I've sinned. I've done wrong. I've sinned against heaven, and I've sinned against my Father. Now, there's one little side note that I want to gather here. When you're trying to help somebody who is living life on their own terms, and they're running from God. You can preach at them. You can try to convince them of the foolishness of their ways and try to bring wisdom into their life. But until the Holy Spirit of God gets a hold of them and convicts them that what they're doing is wrong, until the Spirit of God speaks to their heart and they come to their senses and they realize that that I have sinned against heaven, I've sinned against my family, and I need to turn from that sin and return to God and return to where I need to be until God does His work. It's going to be like preaching to a wall. You can't be the Holy Spirit for your kids. There has to be that moment where the Spirit of God gets a hold of them, where there's a spiritual awakening that causes you to come to your senses. A couple months ago, I was sitting at a formal dinner. And I was sitting across the table from a uber successful couple. I mean, this couple, they they are both doctors. They have achieved as much as you can achieve in life. And I began talking to them about their life. And in the course of our conversation, I asked them about their children. And so the the wife, she just was glowing about her daughter. And she was telling me about her daughter and her son-in-law and the grandchildren and just how proud she was of her daughter. And so I asked her, I said, well, do you have other children? And her face kind of sunk. I was like, "Uh uh-oh, I probably shouldn't have asked this. And she starts telling me about her son. She says, yeah, we also have a son. And he is smart. He is very capable. But he's doing his own thing right now. And as she was talking about this, tears began to swell up within her eyes and I could see that she was absolutely heartbroken that whatever was going on in her son's life right now is just really tearing her heart apart. One of the saddest scenes in life is a father or a mother who is grieving a child who has gone astray. And some in this room, you can relate To the father in the story because you've dealt with this or you're dealing with this in your own family and so you know the pain of raising a child and teaching them right and wrong and you know the pain of bringing them to church and seeing God work in their life and then at some point they begin to push away from you and push away from their values and push away from their God and try to be God themselves and chase after wild dreams night after night I can see this father He goes out on the porch of his home. He prays for his son. He thinks about their life. He misses their mother. He longs for his son to return, yet he pretty much has resolved himself that he'll never see him again. Then one night he looks out on the horizon and he sees a familiar walk. And he thinks to himself, that can't be. But he'd know that walk anywhere. He raised that walk. He knows that boy. And he says to himself, my my son has come home. The Scriptures say that while the son was still a long way off, the father saw him and was filled with, what was he filled with? Compassion. Remember the story of the Good Samaritan from last week? In both cases, you have a hurting person. And God's people are filled with compassion. And so he does something that Senior men in Eastern uh, cultures never do. He ran. He ran out to meet his son. He throws his arms around his neck. He kisses him. And the son says to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Immediately the son says, God, Father, I've done wrong. I'm not worthy. The contrast is so vivid between Earlier in the story in verse 21. But now the father has a decision to make. Is he going to scold him? I told you. I told you if you went that way, you would lose it all and you would be hurt. Now look at where you are. Is he going to send him away? Boy, you've made your decision. You left. You left us here. This is no longer your home. Go. You're not welcomed. Or is he going to embrace them? How's he going to respond? Well, the father told his slaves. Quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Now, all these are symbols that the son was not going to be merely a hired hand, but he was going to be restored into the family. Bring out the robe that shows that he is my son. Put on him the ring of authority and the luxury of sandals on his feet. And then bring the fattened calf and slaughter it. And let's celebrate with a feast. We're going to have a party. Because my son has returned. The son of mine that was dead is alive again. He was lost and he's found. And so they began to celebrate. When he sees his son and hears his sorrow, the father immediately responds with compassion. He forgives and he restores. Now, spiritually, I think Jesus told the story because He wanted His audience. He wanted you to know that no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter how long it has been, when you quit trying to be God, when you return to the Heavenly Father, when you ask forgiveness, The Father runs to meet you. And He opens His arms in forgiveness, and He celebrates your return because you belong to Him. You're His child. Aren't you glad that the grace of God doesn't meet you where you should be? It meets you where you are. And then it takes you to where you need to be. Now, funny thing about Christianity, not everybody celebrates what God celebrates in Christianity. It's easy in this story to kind of end the story right here. And you'd like that because you'd be getting out 18 minutes early. But there's a large part of the story that people often hydroplane right over. And in verse 25, the older son was in the field, and as he came near the house, he heard music and <gasps> dancing my legalistic friends are already offended right here at the story okay it's in red jesus said it you got to deal with it okay okay music and dancing's happening here and so he summoned one of the servants and asked what these things meant basically he says hey hey come here w- what's going on here we're baptist okay uh w- why why are there drums? Why, why are people two-stepping to the Cotton Eye Joe at Dad's house? This is just not who, who we are. Well, the servant says, your, your brother is here. And he told him, your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. Well, now, right here, there's an interesting part in the story because now the older brother is caught in the same trap of envy. His emotions now begin overflowing with entitlement. Earlier in the story, it was a young brother who was chasing after a different life that was so entitled that he would go into his father and say, give me my inheritance now. Now the older brother sees the younger brother return and restored, and he thinks that's not fair. He doesn't deserve that. Now he's overflowing with anger. Originally, the younger brother was acting out in immaturity and chasing after these foolish dreams. Now, the older brother is acting out in immaturity. In verse 28, he became angry and he didn't want to go in, so his father came out and pleaded with him. Now, basically what's happening here is the older brother is throwing a fit that a two-year-old would be proud of. He's angry. Party's going on. People are saying, come on in, come on in, come say hello to your brother. He's like, no, I'm not going to come say hi to that guy. He, He left us, and it gets so bad that they actually go and they call his father out, and his father comes out to him, and he's pleading with him. I mean, he's making a scene. Anybody ever had this happen at Thanksgiving or Christmas? There's probably some parallels here, right? There was some family turmoil in verse 28. So the father goes out to him and and begins talking to him. saying, okay, son, you know, look at it this way. And he replies to the father. Look, I have been slaving many years for you. I've never disobeyed your orders. That's probably an exaggeration there. Yet you never gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. And then he says in verse 30, but when this son of yours, when this son of yours came, who has devoured your assets with prostitutes. You slaughtered the fattened calf for him. He says, Dad, I went to VBS and church camp in the same summer. I married Mary Ann instead of Ginger. I went to celebrate freedom instead of Motley Crue. I voted for Dole and McCain just like you told me to. I bought a Prius because it was economical instead of the Harley that I wanted. I've always done what you told me to do. This is not fair. Your grace that you're extending to my younger brother here, it's not fair. The younger brother was envious of other people's lives. The older brother was now envious of his younger brother's life. I see this sometimes in church. Younger brothers who drift because they're envious of the world. And they start thinking that what's taught here and what's here, this, does, this, this really isn't where life is lived. And so they push away from it and they start chasing after the allure of the world. And I also see the flip side. I see older brothers raised in church have always done the right thing who throw fits because they're envious of The Heavenly Father's grace. Don't be envious of grace. To be envious of grace means that you think you deserve grace. To deserve grace totally drains grace of its definition. By definition, grace means that God has extended something to you that you did not deserve. There are no perfect people in Christianity other than Jesus. That's part of the beauty of our faith. That it's not based upon how good I can be, but it's based upon the goodness of God. And God extends grace to us whenever we come to Him in repentance. He blesses us with grace, not so that we may hoard it, but so we can share it with others as well. You are who you are by the grace of God. So, whenever you find God blessing somebody else, when you find God extending grace to someone else, what right do you have to be envious of God's grace? You don't. Because you are who you are because of that same grace. Don't be envious of God's goodness, God's graciousness, God's blessings upon others. Instead, embrace the grace He has given you. Realize that He knit you together in your mother's womb for a divine call and a divine purpose. So live the life that God has given you. Be the person He's created you to be. Love the family that He has given you. Be that godly man. Be that godly woman. and Be a thankful person because you've been touched by the grace of God. In verse 31, the father says, son, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours, he was dead. And he's alive again. He was lost. And is found. The father reminds the older brother of two things. Number one, he says, you're always with me. You don't have the scars of regret that your younger brother is going to carry with him through the rest of his life. He's been restored. He's home. He's my son. But he's going to live with consequences and regret for his actions. You don't have this. You've made wise decisions. He has spent all of his inheritance. You still have that which I have given to you. Everything I have is yours. There's no envy. There's no need to envy my grace. Because I've shared my grace with you as well. When we look at the story, there's three main characters. There's a hurting parent. There's a wayward child. And there's a good kid who always tried to do the right thing. Let me ask you this question. Which one do you relate to the most? When you put yourself in the story, who do you relate to? Some of you may relate to the hurting parent. When I preached this in eight thirty, we have a lot of our seniors in eight thirty, and the thickness of the air was overwhelming to me because I realized how many of them are living the story of the hurting parent. You may have a child that has pushed away and is doing some things that are foolish and doing some things that are going to bring lifelong consequences. You can't be the Holy Spirit for your children. You have to trust in God and His power and His grace to awaken them. At the same time, I want to encourage you to don't ever give up. Keep praying. Keep looking. And when or if your child returns, choose grace over scorn. Look at them with compassion. Rather than disdain. Because they're going to need the unconditional love of their earthly father or mother. Just as they need the unconditional love of their heavenly father or mother. Some of you may relate mostly to the wayward child. You're living life on your own terms trying to be God. It's time to come to your senses. It's time to go home. And I want to remind you that God's grace will meet you where you are and take you to where you should be. You say, I still have doubts. I still have... God will meet you where you are. He'll cross those bridges of doubts with you. His love is open to you. And some of you are the kid who's always tried to do the right thing. You're the good kid. Understand this God doesn't love you because of your loveliness. He doesn't love you because you're the good kid. He loves you through His grace. He's extended grace to you as well. So live in that grace and obey God, not in order to be loved by God, but obey God because you are loved by God. Keep doing the right things. And realize that the grace that God has extended to you is not intended to be hoarded and kept to yourself. It's the greatest gift He's ever given you, so be willing to share it. And Whenever you see other people experience the blessing and grace of God, be thankful that our Heavenly Father has chosen to bless them as well. Would you be so kind as to stand with me, please, as we bow our heads and we come to a time of commitment. The band's going to come. During this time, you can sing the song of worship with the band. You may also feel led to pray, and you can pray at your seat. You can come forward here and pray. I'll be here if there's anything that I can pray with you about. It could even be that this is a time where there needs to be some healing in families. Maybe you and your spouse need to pray together for your children. There could be a situation where you as the child need to go to mom or dad and bring about a beautiful moment of restoration. I'm here at the front if today needs to be the day where you come to the Lord. I would love to help you with that. I'm not just the preacher who gives a sermon each week, but I'm your pastor who lives life with you, cares about you, and prays for you. It's my joy to walk through the journey with you, to celebrate when you celebrate and cry when you cry. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the story in Scripture today, and as we go through it and look at it deeply it scrapes against our own life because in each of our lives there there's truth there that this story speaks to. I pray, Father, that we might embrace the spiritual truth and receive the nourishment that comes from Your Word. I pray, Father, for healing. I pray, Father, for healing in families. I pray, Father, that those that are Finding themselves chasing after darkness will have the clouds part and the light shine and return to you. Lord, I know there's a lot of wound wounds and a, and a lot of, a lot of regrets and a lot of difficulties that people go through with their children and, and their family relationships. But I pray that we might see those that we love the most with compassion. And, and I pray, Father, that, that you'll help us to be wise and godly and gracious. And when we see the man lying beside the road, may we not turn away and walk on the other side, but may we try to help them. May we not simply preach at people. May we love people and take delight in when we see your blessings upon them. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.